Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March. No, it's going to be... It's yeah, gonna, March 3rd, this is coming up. March 3rd, 2023. Cool. Uh, uh, Charles Hain, I'm like a filmmaker and YouTube person, and uh, I'm hosting, and I'm here with uh, Gigi Hawkins. Hello there. And uh, screenwriter and uh, writer at No Film School, uh, Jason Hellerman. Hey. And maybe next week, Gigi, you should start doing yeah. the kickoff. Oh my gosh. I love the I love the Charles Hayne kickoff. I've been listening to it for years. I think it would be we, we would be without tra- it's tradition. It's no film school tradition. It is like seven years of my life that I've been doing that. It's the weirdest thing to have anything have that long continuity. So this week we are talking about first off, we're gonna talk about storytelling and The Last of Us. There's so much to talk about in The Last of Us. We've got a great interview up right now about production design, which like I was reading and really enjoying because I want to know more about the production design decisions they made. It's a great interview. But we're just going to talk about it in terms of like, there's some story design decisions they've been making that have worked this, this week in particular. If you're caught up, you'll know there's some storytelling decisions the internet did not think worked. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to follow it up with Warner Brothers suing South Park, which like, we don't talk about South Park enough on here. It is like an American institution of amazing comedy and like one of the few shows that can make you laugh so hard it hurts. And um, they're trying to get out of a contract in a way that is like kind of amazing. But there's le- there's lessons for all of us in what South Park is doing with this contract and Warner's Absolutely. Yeah. that I think we can all learn from. So that is this week on the No Film School podcast. So first up, Jason, you've been writing a lot lately about the storytelling lessons in The Last of Us. I've been enjoying um, those articles. This is like twice now I've plugged the website, which I almost <laughs> never do. I don't know why, but Ryan, if you're listening, look at that. I can plug yeah, the website. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as Charles said, I, I, I write on a website called NoFilmSchool.com. Uh, no, it's The Last of Us. Is, it's such a crazy show because I think if you told me a long time ago, like, hey, they're going to do a video game adaptation um, of The Last of Us, I would have been like, okay, like, I don't believe that would work. Well, like, I at some point, you know, I think when you're playing a game and you're playing as someone and with someone's emotions, you're like, look, the, it, it is different. Different than film and television, it's still writing, it's still whatever, but but it's different. Also, if I can quote you, I remember when you heard the news, you said no no video game movie will ever be better than Super Mario Brothers starring Bob Hoskins. <laughs> exactly, was that, was yes. what I thought you said at the time. Yeah. yeah, deep cut. It's a deep cut. Look, Bob Hoskins could do no wrong in my book, and it doesn't matter what he's in. You know, uh, he uh, he'll be the goat forever. But uh, but yeah, exactly. Like I, I think, look, video game adaptations always have this sort of like strange aura around them, right? Because you're not only taking something away from the people who are hardcore fans, because um, you always will, right? You're taking away complete interactivity. That's the cost of changing mediums for the story. But in watching this show, I think what the most interesting part to me is how they've said, okay, we are aware we're taking this away. How do we change or tweak the story in ways to make you feel like 
uh, you're still in this. And, and that seems like it should be an impossible task, right? But I think if we look back at our best films and TV shows and things we connect with the most, it does feel like we're a part of it. You know, like I felt like I was uh, one of the members of the Oceanic Six or whatever on Lost. I, you know, I was like 100% in on Breaking Bad, you know, I, not all the way cooking meth. No one sent anybody to my house. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and then in Mad Men, I was buying products I never would. But I think it's like with The Last of Us, you do still feel like a survivor, right? You're not playing mm -hmm. as one of them, but but it does feel like you're going with them in a certain way. I think I saw a snarky tweet this week about uh, how it feels like every episode has one of those like, um, you know, NPC characters. It just pops up to give you exposition. And, and look, I think maybe some of that criticism could be fair, but I, I think it's done in a fun way where you do feel like in any week, almost anything can happen. Um, and you're along for the emotional ride. I don't know how you guys feel about uh, it or if you played the game at all or, I've only played the game once and it was like a friend. I, I love zombies uh, as a concept. And so a, a friend knew that and pulled me out of a party into a bedroom. And <laughs> sounds really creepy, but it yeah, was it's like, keep going. Yeah, keep, keep like, Non-consensual <laughs> video game activity. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I, I sat and played the opening of it and I was like moved and, and, you know, my video gaming experience is limited to the Sims and the Nancy Drew interactive video game, which I'd argue is on the same level yeah. of, you know, it's a storytelling you're along for the ride. I think it's really interesting though, that uh, the last of us was influenced by feature filmmaking, specifically children of men, which I can totally yeah. see how the setup of, the of children of men influenced directly the story of this film and then i've been a big craig mazin fan for many years and learned screenwriting through script notes as well as the the no, the no film school podcast which is why we need charles to keep making these intros because it's like <laughs> filmmaker growth but it's interesting to see also how craig mazin as a fan of the game for years and a fan of gameplay is yeah. able to bring the storytelling elements in most of the time, most of the time. And then sometimes I do feel like we're, we're putting on the game hat. Something that's like playing uh, is something that is in there because it's an homage to the game. Right. It doesn't really mean anything to me as a watch, as a watcher, but I'm usually a little more patient with storytelling where I get to get, I get to hang out with these characters and get to know them and get, th have things unfold slowly and see fresh takes on like, zombie zombie adjacent type right. things like a couple of episodes ago there was the best the creepiest zombie moment i've seen in a long time was uh when um the the what's the what is the character's name the girl joel and uh oh my god i'm gonna say blank and uh joel and ellie right ellie so ellie yeah. is in the car and joel is shooting from afar and there's this huge zombie influx and then also bad guys closing in and she climbs into the back of a car and then a little gymnastics mushroom zombie girl comes in and does a flip in and is climbing <laughs> over the top and i was like oh this is so fresh and so cool so like letting the story unfold but then also splashing in a couple more of those moments and I, frankly i've been missing a little of the zombie element in these last couple episodes i do think that we had a midpoint though in the season which is when ellie learns that joel's daughter died which is kind of where yeah. the the structure of it comes in uh, and I think it is interesting to think about it in a cinematic way because it is a limited series, as I understand it. Yeah, it's interesting for me. I, I'll say like midpoint, such a good pull for like, you know, like screenwriting structure as an audience. We are sort of ahead of the characters in certain points. And I think that's such a 
it's such a hard thing to do, right? If you're playing the game, it's like, yeah, you know, Joel died and you're carrying this with you. And then it's like when your character chooses to share that or whatever is, is a big deal. But as an audience watching the show, if you've never played the game or whatever, you still know that, right? You know, if you've watched the pilot, his daughter's dead, but he hasn't shared it with Ellie uh, for whatever it's been, five episodes. Uh, I'm trying to think because six was this past week. Doesn't matter. But like, it is interesting to see like, oh, there's tension here. And you're like, Part of me is yelling at the screen, like, just talk to her, tell her, you know, no. like, uh, let her into it. But it does still feel like a solid midpoint where, like, she's uncovered a mystery that I think it maybe like traditional filmmaking, maybe we wouldn't know, right? We just know something bad happened or you have a picture or whatever. And I think it's it's an interesting experiment to say, like, OK, like, I don't care if you know, it's important to these people when they know. And when they know the gravitas of that moment, I don't want to say makes up for because it, it makes it sound like it, it was wrong, but it, like it steeps us in like, oh, this is why he didn't tell me. And also like what secrets she's keeping from him, you know, we start thinking about as well. You know, like we know that she's killed someone in the past and different things like that. So, so you know, we're pulling in um, a lot of bigger questions about these people that I think works across the board, right? Whether it's film, TV or video games, right? Like we're always trying to figure out the mystery or the secrets people keep. Well, and one of the things I really enjoy about the show, I mean, I, I'm not a video game person. I'm not anti-video games. I just have no self-control. I played uh, <laughs> Grand Theft Auto for three days once. Like, I didn't leave yeah. the house in, like, 2002. And I was like, just never again. I'm just never doing it. Like, I, I can't stop. Fair. I don't have yeah. that. So I, you know, I respect the art form enough to leave it alone. But I've been really thoroughly enjoying the show. And the thing I like about it is, like, obviously the zombie stuff is really fun and interesting. And I like to take it. Like, I think all the time about mystery, suspense, and tension. Yeah. And one of the nice things about the show, and Better Call Saul did this really well as well, is as human beings, we have this intuitive sense of when people are acting in a coherent way or an incoherent way. One of the ways you can tell a bad movie is bad, like if you're channel surfing and you land halfway through a movie, you can usually tell it's bad because within seconds, you're like, no, nah, the characters are not acting like in a way that resonates with me as a person, right? Yeah. You're like, you fail the uncanny valley. And what's fun about th this show, and Better Call Saul does this with Mike Urban Trout all the time, in which they act in a way where you are like, I do not understand why you are making that decision. You're believably human, so I'm still with the show, but I don't understand why you are making this decision. And it's like, it's incredibly engaging. Like, obviously, there's the mystery of like the bomb under the table, but that's right. way less interesting to me than Ellie observing Joel and trying to unlock the mystery of why Joel acts why he does. And we don't fully know it at this point, but we know he had a daughter who died. We know that leaves scars. And like her journey of being curious about why Joel is the way he is and makes those decisions is like, it's it's like my favorite kind of mystery, watching a character try and unlock another person's character, leading them to make a lot of very sort of interesting decisions and really looking at like how those things go. The tricky thing for me with the show, and it's a challenge I think they've mostly overcome. I don't know the name for this type of storytelling. It's not a Laurent. It's not a picaresque. We were debating this before the thing, but like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a road trip show in which every episode, there's a whole new cast of characters we meet and have a complete story with and move on from. And obviously Pedro Pascal and the actor who's playing Ellie. Bella Ramsey. Yeah. Bella Ramsey. Obviously <laughs> Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey are incredibly charismatic and incredibly like they're wonderful and they have a great chemistry together. So like that keeps you going. But the show has this challenge of introducing us to a new story in each location where you land, where we have to meet the characters and catch up with them. And honestly, it's interesting because so far, I don't feel like 
obviously episode three is the one that, you know, the entire internet yeah. was like, best episode TV show ever. Yeah. And it yeah. really nailed that balance. But I felt like in Kansas City, it felt a little rushed where I was supposed to be yeah. engaging with characters, but I was given a lot of like exposition as exposition. And yeah. then in this episode, we just had episode six. It felt a little leisurely where right. I was like, I don't know if there's enough meat in this episode for the amount of time. So it's this interesting struggle as you're sort of watching a show where I, like the more you do this filmmaking thing, the more empathy you have for the people struggling with these challenges. Cause I'm like, you have no choice, but to structure your show like this. Absolutely. But I do wonder if there was ever a moment in the writer's room where they were like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to start introducing characters from Kansas city and from Colorado from episode one. Yeah. And then it's going to be a more traditional where we see them land together as they go on. And I really wonder if that was ever debated and I don't know if it would have worked or not, but I would have, I, I wish I would have, I, I'm curious about that because sometimes you're supposed to have an emotional landing to the end of a story where I'm like, but I just met that person like 12 minutes ago. Right. Right. And, you're like, and it's oh, a tricky I struggle. Know, like, I, I, I don't know how they're threading the needle. I wonder if the reason this last episode, which is the episode where Ellie and her friend go to the mall, uh, but in a, a very different, ex a very different mall experience than your traditional <laughs> experience. And I wonder if this episode all, mostly took place in here and in one other house in the current day timeline because of budget constraints. Because otherwise, I was kind of like, well, where's the story? Do you think like, it's where? a bottle episode? I, I don't know how else to to. I was talking about this with my partner last night. I was like, I don't, I don't see an HBO exec greenlighting this episode as it is, unless there's another factor in coming into play because it didn't have the same story gravitas as all the other episodes. I mean, even look at the episode three, the infamous episode about the the couple. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder. Like, but budget's an interesting point. I also think, like, at a certain point. Sometimes people think like maybe the audience needs a little bit of a break, right? To get and them, um, you know, what we've talked about before, right? It's like we've had a lot of Joel's past, we haven't had a lot of Ellie's past. So like pulling in the Bella Ramsey character and, and saying, like, okay, like where does she come from? What was the world like that she grew up in? Right. Because, you know, one of the fun things I think about the game and in the movie is what they talk about that she knows or doesn't know about, you know, what the world is, was like. And I think taking a peek into, you know, pun intended, like these empty places and smaller scale, it did feel like almost a reset for her character, right. Of like, Hey, we're starting the game over in her point of view and yeah. we're going to slow play into that. I do think there's probably something to the budget thing. It, it felt like there's been a couple expensive episodes in a row, like maybe slowing it down a little bit. They're like, what if we had one dead body in this one in the beginning? You know, like, uh, yeah. But I mean, they built but, an entire yeah. post-apocalyptic exactly. mall. Although yeah. <laughs> product placement might've paid for that mall, right? Those are all current brands. There wasn't yeah. any, fake stores. There was an express, there was Victoria's cool. secret. So it's entirely yeah. possible that the whole episode. And I mean, this is another reality that affects all shows. It's like, I wonder if there was in negotiations with Victoria's secret, like an amount of screen time brand labels were supposed to be getting like, that is a thing that comes up on some products. I don't think it came up on this project, right. but you, you do never know. Yeah, I was absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Judy. I was surprised yeah. to see all the brands, which helped, I, I thought was great for the storytelling experience because I, it, they were being represented in the way that they were just in a post-apocalyptic world. I wonder if there was any, either any product placement at all or all that was like organic because they had 
you know, a zombie in an American girl doll store. And I cannot <laughs> see American girl doll being like, sure. Um, yeah. you kind of trash the body shop, which like, you know, I'm right. kind of angry with them. Uh, but, um, <laughs> or I'm like, did malls, is this a mall, like a big mall brand was like, let's make malls cool again and put this in. And like, you can use any of our, our likeness. That was just one idea that I had. Can I tell you the scene that I wish I had seen in this? <laughs> yes. Yes, please. I wanted them to I wanted them to go into the Victoria's Secret and have like, you know, over their clothes trying on these insane things and then I wanted a zombie mushroom to be in there because it's the least it it was the least tapped out tap like nobody's looting Victoria's Secret. And right. they Say that, and then I was like, oh, "That's such a gem. That's such a gold mine for like a good fun montage." And then like, let's stop with the surprises of this little game that they're playing, and let's move the story forward. That's what I wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an inter- it's an interesting challenge of an episode because if you guys aren't watching, like, obviously, you probably would have left this episode of the podcast by now. But it's a flashback, and the the, the trick with the problem with all flashbacks is we know what happens after. We know Ellie, we meet her alone, so we know her friend is no longer part of her life, and we already have this intense emotional investment in her in the present. So one of the things you have to build into any proper flashback is true elements of actual surprise, which is, again, incredibly difficult to do in a zombie show because everyone is constantly aware that zombies are coming. So I honestly, I you know, I don't think the zombie moment as it plays is surprising. I I don't know if your lingerie zombie moment would have been surprising. I kind of feel like they should have. It's a tricky battle. I know the internet was not a big fan of this episode. I, I found some charm in this episode in like nostalgia for that particular era. And, for malls. And that particular era of malls, that particular era of everything. Like, I think it worked for me better than... I also didn't watch it till this morning after I'd already read the, the internet didn't like it. So right. I had a low expectation going in and I was like, oh, this episode's, I don't know why the internet is hating this episode. It's fine. Which the always internet helps. is so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> the internet has strong opinions really yeah. quickly about things that I need to think about a little bit yeah. before the I come into the some hindsight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I do think it's a real challenge with a flashback episode where, you know, the goal should be, I should walk out feeling like I know Ellie better. And I should walk out feeling like there's real surprise. And I and I get that the internet didn't necessarily feel like that happened here. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, I don't know. I there was some criticism I read of like the the flirtate the the way the dialogue worked in flirtation. And I don't know, you know, it's that tricky thing of like, I don't know that I would want to try and write a post-apocalyptic two teenage girls flirting scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. That's such a tricky task. It's something I think about all the time when you're writing about any character. First of all, it's like not exactly like you, which is probably a lot of characters. You know what I mean? Like uh, dialogue winds up playing a part. It's, it has to do with like listening to people in the real world. But if you're writing something that doesn't happen in the world we live in, I I'm tend to give much more of a pass the way people sound or talk. And if it doesn't bump me immediately, then I just, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm in. I believe it. Uh, mostly because no one else has invented it, you know? Yeah. I also think that there was just, a, there's an edit fix to this because a lot there was there was great chemistry between the two uh, girls and they gave great performances and they're very talented and I'm familiar with both of them from other shows that they've been in. And 
I think that if you just cut the dialogue and showed them having fun, it would have come across. A lot of the dialogue to me, I was like, I don't know if it just didn't feel authentic. It felt a little interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, but that's where less is more. And I'm worried. I, I, I could see somebody working on the show and they would feel worried that it wouldn't come across and then it would feel out of the blue. But I think that this is where it's important to also trust the audience. No, I think you're right. Like, without being like, it should have been a montage. Like, it does feel like, I don't know, there are times in my own writing where I am dealing with a character with a very complicated emotion, right? It's like, it's so hard to type the words that mean something, but it's, if you take a step back and realize it's a visual medium, you know, it's like, oh yeah, like, there is some sort of action that means something. I think this might be one of those cases where like, the gameplay of the game maybe got in the way of what they were thinking, right? Which is like, you have to play this emotion so you feel it. And like, oh, but in TV, we could just watch that emotion um, as they did something else, you know? And, and I think that's, it's, in, it's an interesting point. It's not something I thought about when watching the episode, but now I'm like, oh, I, I would have loved that scene too, especially if it like carried the weight of that flirtation. You hit the nail on the head because this was written by the guy who created the game too. And and I think you just clarified why the dialogue was there because in the video game, you need to say it because yeah. the gamer is not going to sit there and be able to feel the emotion of a look right. like we do with these actors with yeah. the little, I, I think the uh, the last of us uh, little people are great. They, they're, yeah. they're, they're more emotive than most, than the Sims. I have very little to compare it to, so. The non-player characters? Yes. Um, yeah, like that wonderful one in the gym sequence that was like, you can't fight me, your friend's not here. And I was like, this is, yeah, I can see the lineage of video gaming. I don't know, I mean, I think it's, it is complicated to take anything from one medium to another, but some of our favorite movies are adapted from books. And I think as video games move into a more sophisticated place, as they have for the last 15 to 20 years, I think that this won't be the last like sophisticated, interesting video game adaptation. And so far, I think that there's a lot that like screenwriters can take from it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking of another thing screenwriters and filmmakers can take, Warner Brothers is suing South Park in like the world's best, angriest lawsuit. So a little bit of background. Warner Brothers has this streaming platform, HBO Plus, you guys might have, HBO Max, sorry, you guys might have enjoyed (laughs) some HBO Max content in your time, maybe watching Last of Us or Last Week Tonight. And you've thought to yourself, you know, this is a great platform. I'm enjoying it. It also has South Park on it. And to get South Park on it, they paid Paramount, who's the distribution company for South Park Digital Studios, a lot of money, an exorbitant amount of money. Like 1.5 million an episode? Per episode. Yeah. Like it's, they paid a lot of money for South Park because there's a lot of episodes. And the deal included 30 new episodes and four new specials. This was way back, this was in 2019 when Paramount only had CBS All Access. They didn't have their own streaming network. 
Lo and behold, pandemic came. Paramount was like, we would like our own streaming network, Paramount Plus. And one of our biggest shows is South Park. And our other big show, Star Trek. For some reason, the internet is not a fan of the new show, and I don't get it. Picard, the internet doesn't seem to like it. I haven't, I haven't watched yet. Is it called Picard? Isn't it Picard? I, I, I just yeah, watched Picard, yeah. trailers. I, what was I? I was watching Survivor, uh, the Mike White season, because I need something to fill my white lotus hole in my heart. So <laughs> I'm watching that season. And Wh- Picard which Mike White season? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's two? Hold yeah. on. Oh my gosh, you just blew my mind. I'm doing David's work. And every single ad is for Picard, Star Trek Picard. And I'm like, is it Picard? It sounds like a bird. Anyway, now I know. Thank you, Charles. I I, I do what I can't educate in everything I do. Um, (laughs) So they decided Paramount Plus is not doing as well as they had hoped. We're like, I think as a macro view, we're all aware that there's only going to be two or three streamers that survive, right? That like this land of 90 streamers is not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And so Paramount decided, sure, we signed a contract to give South Park content to Warner Brothers. But I like to tell my students that contracts are contracts have uh, as much to do with the power you have to enforce them as they do to what's actually written down. And a good actor will take will follow the intent of the contract, and a bad actor will follow the language of the contracts. And yeah. uh, you should pay attention to that. And Paramount has decided that they are going to follow the language of the contract in a way that I like. It's because it's all of these big people. I can just laugh at it, and I don't really have a side in this yeah. race. South Park's funny. Like y'all have fun. I hope I get to work with all of you in the future in some capacity because this is this is a fun one. But so they owe three more seasons to Warner Brothers, and they decided to make these six episodes and call it a season. <laughs> then they made like a Christmas special and the, and a COVID special, and they were like, "Those are two of our specials and another season." And then they started <laughs> doing stuff for Paramount Plus that are not specials because specials have to go to HBO Max, and they're not new episodes of the show because those have to go to HBO Max. They're events. They are South right. Park events. Um, and I'm like, yeah. and Warner's is pissed. And I, you know, as someone who's been in contract disputes with people, and I, I get why Warner's is so pissed. Cause I'm like, you guys signed the contract and took the money. Yeah. And Warner's lawsuit is full of, there's this thing, legalese. If you haven't done a contract yet, you're going to learn legalese. <laughs> Legalese is the language lawyers learn to speak in law school. It is designed to remove all ambiguity. So it is hyper-specific and it doesn't really sound like English and it is a very specific thing. And like, I think one of the reasons writers use, lawyers use legalese is to be boring to normal people. This contract has some like very non-legalese, like just smacks of <laughs> I am annoyed at you to Paramount in a way that you just don't usually see. Let me see if I can bring up the good one where I was like, ooh, that's some that's some fun. That was some fun times. Um, oh, there's a chapter heading. The illicit conspiracy emerges. Oh <laughs> it's like, that's not usually what you put in a lawsuit, but you're uh, they're pissed. They are pissed. I, I do feel a little bit of is it short and fraud? Because it's just like a lot of people with a lot of money annoying each other. And I'm just like, oh, well. I think, you know, so much of it, like, I definitely have the same feeling. 
so much of it to me comes down to these like streaming wars we're all caught in now, right? And like, I would feel worse for Warners if HBO Max wasn't deleting other people's shows completely off and erasing it. Yeah. And I'd feel worse for Paramount if they could get their act together and figure out what it, their channel was, right? I mean, actually, no, maybe I should praise them for lowering the price of their service, right? But like, everything to me is, it is that legalese, right, Charles? It's like, we wrote things in a way where we could have our cake and eat it too. And I don't necessarily mind that. I think like if filmmakers are coming out on top, I'll always root for that, um, no matter mm -hmm. whatever in the end. But, but I do think because of these streaming channels and because of what they're labeling things, like, oh, well, we don't know you residuals because this is an event series. Or we don't know you this because this is a, a limited series. So we don't have to pay for like the use and likeness of blah, blah. Like I, I am a little bit like, we're gonna, this is the first lawsuit of many, I think coming that are going to be based on like what sort of ideas you can come or like, oh, I have an overall here, but not only for movies. I, this is a TV show I'm selling over here. It's like, it does feel like we're dipping our toes into a much bigger conversation that's about to happen, which is like, who owns what's happening on these things? And, you know, are they allowed to just take them and sell them other ways? Are they allowed to own the characters and move them around? I mean, again, these are like these big ethereal concepts that like before in film and TV, it was like, oh, South Park was on Comedy Central and that's where I watched it. And if I wanted to watch the old episodes, I would go to like SouthPark.com and Comedy Central ads would play before them. Box exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I have a DVD box set. Clean and yeah. cut and dry. Or yeah. uncut. Bigger, or longer, uncut. and uncut. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think set. there's a few interesting things here that I think are relevant for all filmmakers to think about. One of which is let's not forget we're talking about Paramount and Warner's as if they're these fixed entities. But yeah. like famously, the person running Warner's right now is not the person who was running Warner's a year ago and mm -hmm. wasn't even really in the running to be running Warner Brothers two years before that, right? Yeah. Uh, he was the head of Discovery Networks. So, and Paramount has had multiple turnovers in leadership in the last four years as well. And so we think of them as being these institutions, but a just as likely scenario is in 2019, whoever was running Paramount at the time just wanted a bunch of money and was yeah. like, oh, you'll give me a bunch of money for this content? Hooray, I'll take a bunch of money and probably intended to fulfill that contract. Yeah. It took a bunch of money. And then two years later, new person's running Paramount. And it's like, well, fuck it. Let's have some. Probably when they found out they couldn't do any South Park shows was pretty pissed because they probably like took the job, assumed they could do some <laughs> South Park stuff, couldn't. And we're like, all right, well, give me the contract. Let's see what we can do here. And and, you know, Warner's is probably the same thing. It's entirely possible. I don't know who was running Warner's and Paramount two years ago. It is entirely possible that the person running Paramount made a decision, which was like, yeah. ah, I know them. We golf. <laughs> It'll be OK. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Like, it's not going to jeopardize their actual shows and we'll get away with it. But now there's someone new in Warners. And the thing yeah. I think that we all have to remember in this is we have this dream that contracts are going to be these locked, fixed things that work and protect us. The reality of them is they are about power and who enforces them and who writes them and how they get used. And like, it is entirely possible to imagine that two years ago when they planned their events, mm -hmm. they just thought it would be fine and Warners would be cool. Right. And then a new person is in at Warner's that they don't know who has much different opinions and is ready to bring the hammer down over it. And so it's this thing of like, it does, I think Jason is right to point out that like, we are in a, we're in a shuffle where all the contracts are going to be new, which is again, why we were talking about a writer's guild strike all the time. I mean, I know I bring up this up all the time, but the writer's <laughs> guild is the strikingest of unions. God mm -hmm. bless them. And we're due for another because it's been like 15 years, but the, 
But one of the things that often triggers the Writers Guild strikes is big technology changes, right? TV comes in in the 50s and we have it. Videotape comes in in the 60s and 70s and we have it because people have to fight to figure out how it is. And I know streaming doesn't feel like a new technology because we've been streaming Netflix since 2008, 2009. But what is happening right now with the streamers consolidating, the streamers buying up market share, and the biggest thing is the streaming model changing. 15 years ago, Netflix's streaming model was, we'll stream everybody's stuff. Mm -hmm. Now their model is, we are going to spend money to make our own stuff which is what all of the streamers are doing. And that, that is a different model. And that will radically change how things are going to work for a long period of time. And I think that like, yeah, it's going to be a real wild one as we watch <laughs> this shit shake out. Yeah. I think it's going to be like fucking weird. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you bring it up. Uh, it is going to be weird. And I'm glad you bring up this sort of change out changeover in leadership and how intent can change at the, you know, in, in a second because of that. And I've been, you know, not in film, but in at the wall street journal and Dow Jones, which is a news corp company. I've been in the middle of reorgs, which has a trickle down effect that impacts everyone. And I think that when you're an independent writer or, or director and you're sort of entering the studio system and you're wondering why you're in development hell or like why things were going so great. And all of a sudden, like this development exec is not engaging with you at all. Well, maybe it's because like his boss changed or the directive changed because a new person came in. And it's like, these are things that are just completely out of our control. And I wonder recently, I've been like kind of reflecting on this with a couple of friends about how studios in, in the context of streaming, but also in the context of like wall street being involved, it just feels so traditionally business-like, which it always has been a business, but traditionally business-like yep. expecting returns on a quarterly basis, which like I think it, it is absolutely impacting the quality of movies coming out. And it's it bums me out because I wonder where we're gonna where things are gonna balance out and if they'll balance out. And I hope to God they will. And maybe it'll just be an indie film where we'll get through great original films and then a couple of blips here and there but it's worrisome <laughs> yeah you're i mean like you hit the nail on the head the one thing i'll say in general is that like hollywood has stopped because we've moved towards the business model they've stopped doing development right and development is a it can be a dirty word right it's like oh, i'm stuck in development i'm in development hell you know i'm i'm whatever but there were times when you would get an executive you liked or you'd work with a producer who really inspires you or a director or an actor or whoever, and you'd get their notes and you'd change the script and you'd do whatever. And it would be this symbiotic relationship where everyone's goal was to make the best possible movie or TV show and then release it. And now what's happening is um, they expect everything to be packaged before it comes in, right? So we'll have an actor, writer, director attached. A lot of that development is done for free, which means the writers get paid nothing, which could be mm -hmm. involved in the negotiations coming up. Don't want to speak out of uh, school on the strike, but definitely something that will be uh, <laughs> a big deal to people. And by the time you get this package, nobody wants to do anything to it. Even if there's like a glaring plot hole or it's not good or whatever, it's like, hey, we just have a bunch of famous people attached to this thing to make sure we can all get paid we'll make this and we'll make it. We'll put it on, you know, if we're using a scapegoat Netflix and then we'll release it and we'll do whatever. And, and I think like, that's not the best way to make this stuff, but it's the business way to make it right. There's low mm -hmm. upfront costs, low to no upfront costs. 
and then you shoot something and you immediately release it. And their whole thing now is if it doesn't do well or or they they feel like they're paying too much in residuals, they'll just delete it from existence, right? Which is a terrifying prospect if you're someone. Look, I made my first feature with Awesomeness TV and we had a great time. Um, the only way you can get that, no physical copies were made, is to rent it on iTunes now. And that's terrifying to me. As someone who's like, hey, go find it on iTunes, whatever, pay $3.99. But also like that one day it could just be gone is, uh, you know, like something lingering, right? It's not like I make that much in residuals off it. I think I made like $1 last year. But like just the fact that it could go away is crazy. And knowing that they're taking things away, you know, is scary enough. And But knowing that they're not willing to invest their own time and effort in, and, and money, frankly, into the beginning of the idea uh, is what's even scarier. You know, I think right now my job as a writer in Hollywood is truly to create somehow a perfect script that gets a director, writer, or sorry, director, actors, attached, producers, and then their job is to sell it. So it's like the only ideation is really coming from the writer at some point and maybe like a director polish later. You can't live on nothing, right? You can't live on that hope. Uh, right. No money's being exchanged. What are you going to do? And, and I think everyone feels that from whatever. It's why so many actors have production companies now, right? Because they're trying to find these scripts early enough develop themselves again for no money to the writer to star in to have something to sell later it's it's kind of a crazy i mean it it does feel like the wild west and i'm hoping this bubble bursts and the quality affects things but i also like you know you're also trying to play ball because you want to put food on the table so it's an interesting time for sure and i think with this lawsuit it truly does come back to the south park lawsuit of like who i want to work for when how much development i want to do and what i'm calling what i'm making uh, to get away with it. And and I think in some ways it does feel like a little heroic, even though it is petty because it forces these companies to rethink what they've purchased. And also like we're in the brand spanking new world of contracts and business and the legalese is going to have to adapt with the frankly, for lack of a better term of bullshit that we've been hearing from these studios about what they're purchasing or what, you know, Oh, it's well, it's just for digital. So it doesn't have to be a WGA minimum scale. It's got to be whatever. You know, it's like all these loopholes they make you run through to pay you less and make sure you're not compensated later. So we're going to find out. It's going to be a very interesting summer and fall. I hope if there's a strike, it doesn't last long. I hope everyone gets what they want on the writer's side. Um, and we can get back to making things I think matter and create a writing profession where breaking in doesn't cost you 10 years of your life and you get paid no money. But we'll see, you know, like... Uh, there's hope for a better tomorrow, but for today, uh, I think this lawsuit and everything else proves how frustrating it is in Hollywood right now for a lot of creatives. They're just trying to make something. To be clear, I'm not hoping for a strike. Sure, no, I I'm know, hoping for the that, yeah, sure. yeah. I'm hoping for the writers to get what they want without having to strike. But yeah, I love yeah. that the writers have struck enough in the past that it is a realistic threat that people take yeah. seriously because they're actually willing to use it, and I think Absolutely. that that's effective in negotiations. Yeah. I also think. In addition to it sucking that there's no development money anymore for writers, I've watched things in the last couple of years that are underdeveloped, sure. where I'm watching it, and I'm like, yes. that seems like it could have been developed further. And, you know, there was this joke, there used to be, there were a couple of filmmakers in the 80s and 90s that could just, like, make whatever they wanted, and you would watch their films, and you'd be like, that was a first draft. Like, yeah. you just, like, and... But nobody else really did it because everybody else had to go through like years of development to get something going. Right. And now I'm seeing a lot more stuff where I'm like, that kind of feels like a first draft. Absolutely. Which like, there's nothing inherently wrong with the first yeah. draft, but you're not supposed yeah. to shoot it. Have you you're guys seen to... um, You People? I don't mean to like... Sure. 
shit yeah. on that I'm going to. Like, we did, there were things in there that just did not make sense. Like, from a basic human element, like human interaction, you are engaged to somebody before you meet their parents and before we've seen you kiss on screen and then you CGI, CG kiss at the end. Like, <laughs> what? That's where I think development is so important because it's like, of course. Of course, you you'd have the, you talk about these things. You'd be like, I just don't believe that they wouldn't kiss. Yeah, they... bake it. Yeah, bake it into something. Or like, that's a movie where I felt like, oh, what happened to the golden age of like, you get your ten best comedy friends to come write a bunch of jokes. Like, you know what I mean? I was like, oh, this movie's missing a lot of jokes. Like, and it had like, the yeah. premise there. Like, it had. Yeah. It, it's exactly what Charles was saying. Like, there was something there. Amazing. I hope they remake it and make it. Yeah. <laughs> what it sh- could be yeah i mean look they've remade it a dozen different times and called it something different so it, it, anyone could do it but it is yeah it's tough i think yeah we're we're definitely seeing more first draft now charles i think it's it speaks to people wanting to get paid i like i truly think and not not in a bad way not in like a cash grab way in like a oh my god if we don't have we have eddie murphy right now and a window to shoot him we should just go and like people will improv on set and you're like, okay, but that's not what the story is. You know, <laughs> like you can only improv a story so much. Like I think uh, certainly we're getting that a lot just because people are trying to find these windows to, uh, you know, whatever, cover their nut for lack of a better thing. And it, it's, it's truly backfiring all over. Um, but the reverse side is when you're not paying anyone for development, it's hard for me to get mad at them because I'm like, Oh man, I, I also like totally. have rent to pay. Right. It's like, you know, it's late February. We got to pay. There's only 28 days I get paid for this month, and it costs the same. <laughs> like I got to make some more money. You know, so I totally get it. Um, but it's hard, man. It, it it's a hard business right now. And yeah, I think people are rushing to shooting, and people are rushing to shoot stuff now because if there is a strike, they won't. You know, they won't have writers on set for hopefully not, but possibly the entire summer, if not longer. It's like, well, what, what can we get out? You know, um, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And it's like, and this isn't new. I remember reading an interview with Peter Morgan after here, after came out the script he wrote that yeah. uh, Clint Eastwood did where he was very upfront where he was like, I don't like that movie. That was a first draft. And I submitted it to see if people were interested in it. And Clint Eastwood refuses to do rewrites. So Clint Eastwood wanted to do it and did it. And I really like, there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to fix before it was shot. And I was like, only Peter Morgan has the clout to say that publicly. Sure. But like, it is sort of an interesting thing. You know, Clint Eastwood shooting the first drafts is like because he doesn't like development yeah has always been interesting because unforgiven is so good but for yeah. every unforgiven there's also a couple where you're like i don't know man like yeah. a, a, especially like changeling i remember watching changeling and being so aware i was like you need a first x subplot like where's yeah. the first x subplot nothing kicks off until like page 34 and i'm like just just like one development pass would have fixed that and i'm sure the writers know that and that must be so frustrating <laughs> It's definitely interesting. It's so funny because, like, you're right. Like, but Eastwood comes from a time where, like, development hell was like, oh, everything, all my good ideas are stuck and I can't get them out, you know? So, like, I sort of get where he's coming from. And you're, but, like, there's a happy medium we've never achieved in Hollywood. We've just never had it. And right now, we've, like, you know, we've, we've skewed to the past of, like, yeah, these do feel like first drafts. And I mean, like, legit first drafts. Like, at least I feel like if a studio movie got to Queen Eastwood, writers had done some work on their own on it. Whereas like now I do feel like we are getting like, Hey, we just finished this final draft document, you know, whatever, converted it to a PDF, sent it to our agents who now have these people on it. And we're shooting it without anyone questioning whether or not like the world has changed in between these things. Do we feel, have you seen the movie yet where you're like that? That's a typo. 
Like that line you just said is clearly a typo <laughs> and no one caught it, but that's clearly not what you were supposed to be saying there. I don't know if I've seen typos, but I've seen stuff that ages so quickly because you're like, oh, you wrote this in 2019 and this is different now or whatever. You know, like I think there's a lot of, look, even my own stuff, I'm going back and being like, oh shit, I have to do like a post pandemic draft. Not, not even that mentions the pandemic, but just be like, so much stuff has changed, you know, like uh, I had, it doesn't matter. I have a sample. I, I'll, I'll just share this story. I had this sample that got me all the jobs I've ever gotten for a long time called We Need Space. And it's about a couple that's in therapy. And then they find out their therapist is an alien. And all therapists across the world are aliens. That's how they've been studying the human race. And they're going to take over the world. It was like a great sample and comedy. And it was about, you know, like, uh, spoiler alert, like the couple breaks up and then get back, gets back together and blah, blah, and all that fun stuff. But there was a joke in it that was like, you know, about there's aliens breaking into their house and the wife is like, the husband's like, I'm going to get, like, I think we have like a, a really heavy spatula in the kitchen. We can hit them with. And she's like, oh, I have a gun. And he's like, what? Like, she's like, oh yeah, I've got a gun. And she just like comes out with an AR-15. And she's like, I, like, I have, I've had this in the attic. Like, I'm a gun person. You should know. Like, it's very fun. And like, it was funnier when I wrote it. And now it's like way, like way too political for her to come out with like an AR-15. You know, like it's a, di- we're in a different world. And like, I, I, I do think like, People are doing different things now. I mean, now she just comes out with a pistol and I'm like, whatever, people get over that. But like, it is like, we're seeing movies that aren't taking into context anything else. Or just like, I think like the Judd Apatow bubble movie about people shooting that movie. Like, I don't think it was as funny as he wanted to be because a lot of us are, were very poor during the pandemic. I mean, like, it was like the worst financial two years of my life. And I was also like trying to get married at the same time. And I just remember being like, this is, a horrible situation I'm in where like, you know, hours are reduced. Nobody's buying things. It's awful. And I have to like watch like a comedy about celebrities trying to shoot something where they like can't stop sneezing on each other. Like that was like not my experience. You know, I think like, yeah, uh, we're getting a lot of these big reveals now that I I think people are like, Hey, you should have like a normal person read this. Just like, you know, in like the world we're in, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't know. Yeah. I I feel like we went a little tangential there. Maybe I steered the ship, but uh, no, I I mean, yeah. I also think that the world's, you know, income inequality in the 70s versus income inequality today is so vastly yeah. different. Yeah. And I feel like if you, like, I remember watching This is 40 and the whole big drama of This is 40 is trying to keep that house. Yeah. And like, I was watching the movie and I was like, sell that fucking house, dude. I don't, yeah. Your heating bill alone is yeah. more than I've ever paid in rent. Like, sell the fuck. And like, he's trying to save this mansion. And I'm like, I do not give a shit about you saving your fucking mansion, dude. Like, yeah. your kids will live in a smaller eye. It, it's like, it's a bizarre plot point. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to live in the Palisades, my man. Like, just like you could sell that sell that house for probably close to twenty million dollars, and you could live in yeah. Century City, where I live, and in in a absolute palace for like five million dollars, and then you'd have fifteen million dollars in the bank. Or also, like, yeah. I mean, that that whole thing of like, I want to sign real musicians. It's like, all right, I have a smaller label. What are we doing here? You know, <laughs> like. You you do need a Taylor Swift to have a giant you know office in Beverly Hills. What are we you know anyway? I digress, but yes, it's a weird yeah. time. I mean, look, this is it's a strange time. There's a lot of first drafty movies coming out. I think a lot of these straight to streaming movies feel underbaked, idea wise, and um, I don't know. There's so many writers I know. I'm friends with so many people that just like have ideas or great ideas that want to get their things shot or done, and things don't get stuck in development. How now? They get stuck in packaging hell because it's like, it might be a done idea that people love, but if you can't get a famous person to read it or attach, or you get someone, God forbid, who you think is famous attached, but isn't famous enough to get it going, 
you're just completely stuck in limbo. And it's this like dirty Hollywood secret nobody talks about of like every agent is selling how famous their client is and how they can get something produced. But really, there's only like probably 10 to 15 people who can demand certain money at studios. And the rest of us are like hoping someone's in like a Top Gun Maverick and <laughs> pops off and suddenly, you know, your your project means something. But otherwise, yeah, it's very hard. And audiences well, but- have sort of, you know, dispelled that. But yeah. And then the thing that's been proven for the last 20 years is that like after your Miles Teller and Top Gun Maverick, you get two or three movies. Yeah. And then if those don't make money, you're back to being a normal actor who's like very handsome and good, but like just a normal actor until exactly. you are the supporting in a big one again. And then you'll get two or three little ones again. Right. And so like you, your goal is to be lined up such that Miles Teller wants to do your script in the two or three movie window after Top Gun Maverick. Absolutely. But yeah. The thing that sucks is you, that means you're trying to get him to read it while Top Gun Maverick's in post. And if Top Gun Maverick had sucked and you have Miles Teller, you're fucked. Absolutely. Luckily, Forever. it didn't. Yeah. yeah. Luckily, it was good. Yeah. All right. This has been another episode of the Optimist Podcast about <laughs> hopes and dreams and believing in the future. I mean, I Hollywood believe. will survive, I right? California will fall into the ocean, but... Yeah. We're on the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Everything right. will change. And like, that's the thing. Like, we are in maybe a year in this post COVID, like, post pandemic Hollywood thing. We are at the verge of like a couple bubbles bursting and then new ones being created. I, like, I can't wait to see where it goes. I hope I continue to get to work in it. But, but it truly right now, like, all of our, like, everything we said is, is simultaneously true and could be different in, in six months. So it's, you're along for the ride with us. We're, we're going to sort it out together. But uh, it is a fun and crazy time. Yeah. And if you're looking for some inspiration, let me direct you to the episode that's coming out tomorrow. It's an interview with, is there anybody out there, director Ella Glenn Dinning, who is her Texas premiere at South By after premiering at Sundance. And then we also talked to two DPs who just nail their uh, festival experience. So you can go out there, get into the indie scene, make awesome things and uh and and create your own development hell and live in it and love it yeah exactly create your own hell <laughs> yeah uh all right so i am uh charles hayne you can find me on youtube at charles hayne where i do youtube stuff and i'm on mastodon at charles hayne at barbecue.snoot and that's that's it for me in the socials it's all I, I do socially. <laughs> I'm Gigi hawkins i'm at lost in graceland and if you're at the mammoth film festival this weekend uh, hit me up. Uh, Jason Hellerman. You can find me at Jason Hellerman on Twitter and reach out. Thejasonhellerman.com if you want to read We Need Space. I think it's still sitting on there in my spec sample thing. And then I'm, as always, on the No Film School website, uh, cranking out those screenplay articles for you guys. And if you ever have questions or comments or want to learn something, uh, you know, hit me up on Twitter and I'll make sure we write an article about it. Oh, and you can follow No Film School at No Film School and you can also check out uh, the No Film School website for many Jason and Charles posts and articles. Uh, and then let us know what you think. Uh, shoot us an email, editor at nofilmschool.com. Send us your questions. And thank you so much for listening. 